Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Well, it's Tuesday, and with all that being said, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, a little fanfare. By the way, a very little, because our trumpet player got sick and couldn't make it. Uh, here comes Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How are you, my Another friend? Another fine day, and... Minicasia land. Have you had a lot of water over there? Oh, yeah. 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 It's it puddled up pretty good. Really? Yeah. And you're a short fellow. I mean, do you have to wear, do you have to wear a snorkel? Yeah, I get enough jokes about being short from my family, so. Where's Ken? Well, he's right here. Just yeah, look down. Yeah, look at, yeah, here he is. How tall are you? Uh, 5'8"-ish. Oh, come on. Okay, 5'7". Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yes. And you were drafted by the NBA. <laughs> That's right. Okay. For the towel boy. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Okay, we're going to talk about a place called, uh, in South Dakota, called the Pine Ridge Reservation. Been there. Okay. Yeah. So you're going to, yeah. you'll recognize some of these, yep. uh, but uh, kind of an interesting story that I ran across. So... Picture this, the most ticklish, dangerous few hours in the history of the Big Pine Ridge Indian Reservation of South Dakota occurred during a bright June morning in 1881. This was the first day of the Sioux's last Sundance. Now, as you recall, the Sundance was kind of something they did uh, before going into battle, things like that. So on this beautiful day, a band of nearly 400 Bruley Sioux under Old Chief Spotted Tail from the Rosebud Indian Reservation threatened to storm the newly established Pine Ridge Indian Agency. And at that time, it was actually called the Red Cloud Agency. And they threatened to kill every white man there to seize all the food and clothing. And the big commissary, which had all this goods and food and stuff, uh, and as the Indians, uh, and they said they were going to end up by burning it all to the ground. So they were going to attack, take all the goods, kill all the white people, and burn it to the ground. Mm. So... Only a miracle, mostly in the form of the iron nerve of Pine Ridge's Indian agent, Dr. Valentine T. McGillicuddy, saved the day okay, and prevented the tragic happening. Now, the first agent appointed after the agency was moved from near Crawford, Nebraska, to its present location on White Clay Creek. Uh, he served from 1879 to 1886, after which he lived in Rapid City for some years after leaving the U.S. Indian Service. So this Dr. McGillicuddy is the main guy we're going to be talking about okay. in this story. All right. So Chief Spotted Tail and about 2,000 of his Bruleys had come over from the Rosebud to the Pine Ridge Agency to witness the big Sundance. Now, although his band had brought plenty of food along and Dr. McGillicuddy had been officially informed of this the chief and his band had been accustomed to kind of bullying their agent at the rosebud they were they just kind of push him around and having most this is the white agent right right yes uh so over at the rosebud they were just push uh used to pushing this guy around and getting what they wanted well dr mckillicuddy was not such an easy mark uh and they were yet to learn the hard way 
Now, shortly after entering on duty at Pine Ridge, McGillicuddy had organized, uniformed, and armed a band of 100 young Oglala Sioux Indian police under the leadership of a guy named Captain George Sword. Now, keep that guy in mind, too, George Sword. He was a captain over these 100 Oglala Sioux uh, police uh, men. Was he an Indian? Yes, and he was. He was a full-blood, but proven with bravery and but anyway they dressed these guys in smart uniforms of blue jackets and trousers and black hats they were a very neat impressive efficient band of law enforcement officers and dr mcgillicuddy was very very proud of this group of 100 young men yeah so anyway on this memorial memorable day uh, or in June, uh, McGillicuddy and a group of officials and other guests were assembled in his office awaiting transportation by Army ambulance to the Big Sun Dance, a mile or so to the south of the agency, on what they called Sun Dance Flats. I was going to ask you if that was out in a great big large flat area out there. Yeah, I see. Uh, near there. So, okay. uh, but his group of guests, and, and they were going to go to this Sun Dance uh, deal. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, among his group of uh, guests, it included three army officers, a Major Burke, a Lieutenant Waite, and a Lieutenant Goldman, uh, a guy named Edgar Beecher Bronson, a young New York City rancher in the area who uh, was a good friend. Uh, there was a Mr. Blanchard. He was the post trader at Pine Ridge. And Charlie Conley a local Indian inspector, and a few others. But the Indian, the agent's chief clerk was a guy named Louis Shangro. Shangro. You're sure having a lot of odd names. I am. But, okay, so keep in mind uh, McGillicuddy. McGillicuddy. Captain George Sword. Sword. Over the police. Yeah. Now, this next guy I want you to remember is this Louis Shangro. Shangro. He... Uh, That's a lesson. He was a mixed-blood interpreter and was also in the office with all these guys. Okay. So he's the interpreter. Okay. And you're going to hear a little more about him. All right. <clears throat> so... Suddenly, they were startled by the abrupt entrance of Captain George Sword of the Indian Police, uh, whose manner, though he was calm and dignified, told them plainly that something had gone really, really wrong. Uh oh. He went over. Uh, Sword went over to the interpreter Shangru and began talking to him, kind of in low, hushed tones. Well, the interpreter turned to the group with this startling statement: "Quote, Sword." He say many engines come from white clay, all brulees, and ride war ponies, and all set for some developments. Sword, he also say he no like the looks of things. We got trouble coming. We got trouble coming. Yeah. Anyway, after a glance out the office door, it didn't take long for the group inside to decide that uh, none of them liked the looks of things that were happening outside. Mm. As Captain Sword also said, a band numbering close to 400 warriors Holy sat on their war ponies some 300 yards from the agency compound gate. They didn't know they were going to be there. No, but this this Captain Sword had found out about it ahead yeah. of time, and he came and said, "Okay, this is what's happening." Trouble in River yeah. City. So a heavy cloud of dust behind them showed plainly that they had been coming at a pretty high speed and just stopped. Uh, evidently, they were going to have a little council among themselves. So you got this fort. You got 400 uh, of these uh, Bruley, uh Indians out there. So finally, 10 warriors separated themselves and began walking slowly on foot toward the compound gate. 
The rest of the band kind of hung back uh, the way they'd come, kind of stayed back ways, uh, calling a halt nearly a half mile away. So now a McGillicuddy's wise insistence, all within the office, okay, all these guys that are in the office, uh, resumed their seats to make it look like they, nothing unusual was happening. Okay, so you got these ten warriors coming towards the fort. These guys are in this office, and he says, you guys just sit quiet. Uh, You know, let's make it look like there's uh, nothing unusual happening. So most of them, however, took the opportunity to carefully check their pistols before the delegation of warriors reached the office door. Okay, so are you with me? These Indians are, excuse me, these Indians are right at the door to come into the office. Ten of them. Ten of them, yeah. Yeah. So uh, in a slow, deliberate shuffle, the ten Indians entered the outlines of a rifle showing plainly beneath the blanket of each Indian. Uh, Why were they let in? They just walked in. Wasn't there any outside security? Well, evidently not. Or maybe there was just uh, an understanding that, you know, nothing bad was going to happen, so they weren't stopped. Hmm. So, anyway, uh, with a kind of a gruff, uh, uh, grunted howl, uh, they squatted on the floor facing McGillicuddy's chair with their backs against the wall nearest the door. Oh. They were kind of scowling. They were kind of sinister, kind of bad-looking guys. And you could tell they weren't there for any peaceful purpose. So here's what the, the leader of them said. He said, quote, you tell agent we want grubs. Uh, this was the sub-chief, and he told the interpreter, Shangro, after a long silence. And he was kind of a tall, powerful, uh, middle-aged Indian, so kind of a leader. And But he told the interpreter to tell the agent. They wanted food. They wanted food. So here's what uh, McGillicuddy said. He said, you tell him that I have been advised by his Rosebud agent that he and his people left there fully rationed for the round trip here to the Sundance and back. And he just said this very calmly, just, you know, that was it. And he says, you, well, then the Indian said, you tell agent he must give us grubs now, right away. And this, he demanded the chief. I mean, he was getting mad. He was getting upset. Mm. All right. Now, uh, so McGillicuddy says, Lewis, you just tell him to go to heck. Uh, now, just a minute. For the <laughs> clarification of history. History. Yes. And that's really the word that was that, used. Oh, yes. Yes, no doubt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> McGillicuddy answered quietly and said he gets no food at this agency. He looked the chief squarely in the eye, kind of a little smile on his face. Can you just picture this? I can. So, jumping suddenly to his feet, the uh, enraged, bullying chief... Uh, ran right up to the agent's side. <clears throat> he shook his uh, fist in his face, and he said, If you don't give us them grubs now, I'll kill every white man on this reservation. And the Indian, he shouted, uh, and he actually he said this in English. So, you know, he, he knew a little English. Okay, so we, we have this standoff now. So here's McGillicuddy. Standing there. And this bad chief. Right. That's mad because he didn't get his food. Right. Okay. Now, the chips were plainly down now, and no mistake, for nearly a minute or so, it seemed this defiant sub-chief towered, and actually Mac was just sitting there. 
kind of confronting each other. There was kind of a mean scowl on the chief's face, and kind of I got a picture of this kind of an amused smile on McGillicuddy's face. Now, why would McGillicuddy be smiling, knowing that he's got an uprising against well, him? You may find out right here. Oh, okay. So then suddenly the smile left. McGillicuddy's jaws tightened, and without a word, he jumped up, sprang upon the chief, seized him by the throat, and shook him until his concealed rifle clattered to the floor. Without hesitation, McGillicuddy then rushed him to the open door, whirled him around, and gave him such a violent kick in the rear with his boot that the chief went sprawling into the dust several feet from the door. This might have started something. (laughs) Well... Uh, defiant, sadly hurt in spirit, and half strangled from the choking. He was truly kind of a sad and dangerous spectacle. Laying there, he is. His nine braves dashed out, promptly helped him to his feet, and brushed some of the dust from his blanket. The whites also came out at once and all lined up outside the door with their backs to the wall. And if, if by magic, a dozen or so of sword, you remember sword? Yeah, uh, the, he had the hundred Indians. Right. Uh, Swords, young Indian police appeared in their midst, lining up in the ranks against the agency building. Wow. So here you've got uh, these guys against them. So so the ten Indians were against a whole bunch of the good Indians. Right. Okay, gotcha. Okay. So then came a few ticklish minutes. A single shot was all that was needed to, uh, quote, open the ball, as they call it. Yeah, start the dance. Uh, Yeah, and the fight would be on. But the chief and his warriors, after carefully weighing the situation, uh, pulled out through the gate and set off toward their band. So they left. The bad ones. Yeah, they're heading out okay. by, to where the other... With, with the chief that got kicked in the butt. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the whites drew a deep relief, uh, breath of relief, and... Uh, well, no, wait, I got a question there. Uh, why didn't he go out to his band of, what'd you say, three, four hundred? Why didn't they come back in force? I'll, I'll get to that. Well, hurry. <laughs> I'm getting there. So i got to read this because this uh, is directly from the mouth of a guy uh, named Charlie Conley. He says, Bet will sure pop good and plenty when that old coffee cooler gets back to his bunch and spills his tail. And if we ain't got them buffaloed and they come back for an attack, I'm afraid it's Katie's bar the door for the lot of us unless we do some mighty tall scheming. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. you got to make a plan. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, there were three Army officers in that office building. Yeah. Okay. So, Major Burke... Uh, you're the senior officer present here, McGillicuddy said. Will you assume command? Uh, and he said, nope. You are in supreme command here, and you seem to be doing just fine. And uh, you just tell me what you want us to do. Was this in the middle of a stockade or just a private you know, building out in the open? Uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure uh, how good of a fort or That's a That's what I was wondering. It, I don't think it was really a fort. I think it was just a building. I see. So uh, suddenly it was noticed that George Sword and his band of police had disappeared, and they kind of got a little apprehensive at once. Uh, had they turned and left and sneaked away? Uh, you know, they didn't know what had happened to him, but they were not left long in doubt because uh, the manner in which Sword and his police returned gave them heart failure. They had been watching the Bruley Band uh, where they were still in council several hundred yards away. This is the 400. Yeah. So Mrs. McGillicuddy and Mrs. Blanchard uh, had been uh, brought to the agency office for protection. Um, everyone uh, now dropped behind the wall 
formed by a compound fence and was barely hidden, went up over the bluff, not only 40 yards away, and charging at top speed came a sure enough war party with rifles cocked and leveled. Keen eyes sought the sights, and fingers were beginning to tighten on the triggers when all of a sudden Shangru, the interpreter, said, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! This is Sword and his Indian police band, his hundred. They're coming. They're, the cavalry's coming. Do you, okay? So it was the trusty Sword with every one of his young policemen with him swinging into the gate. He quietly led his men behind this large office building, which was the north side, and left their horses in charge of a few holders. Then he calmly lined the rest of his band along the breastwork beside the whites. So honest, trusty sword had passed his baptism of fire with flying colors and was ready to die in defense of his beloved uh, Mr. Dr. Valentine, uh, Valentine McGillicuddy. I'm still lost. Okay. I mean, okay, hold it. They were there. Sword the, and his men were there. Well, they, no. In the beginning, Sword was by him, uh, with just a few of his men. Okay, the so rest, then he left. Right, to go get the others. Go get the... The uh, other hundred. The, the cavalry. Okay. Yeah, so now they're together. So they had 100 guys. 100 now they're ready guys. to fight the 400 brutally. You know, but really, the odds are still not very fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what a change, Captain Sword. Uh, I mean... Uh, uh, all through his training, he was he just uh, was doing great. But anyway, so here comes you know I mentioned that the his uh, soldiers were all dressed in blue uniforms. Yeah, and what hats. happened to that? Well, uh, here they came, completely stripped of their uniforms. They were naked with the exception of breech claws and moccasins. Their faces were painted and half hidden beneath great war bonnets and eagle feathers. They'd prepared for war. Prepared for battle, as so, an Indian would. But they could have been shot by the cavalry that was at the fort because they didn't know who they right. were. And that's why the interpreter said, You're losing you, man. This is a movie here. <laughs> okay, we got to finish this up. Okay. Anyway, the situation for the little force of whites and Indian police pitted against the nearly 400 Brulees was still very grave. Escape was hopeless as getting help. There was only one cavalry troop at Fort Sheridan. That was 18 miles away. Fort Robinson was 60 miles away. Uh, so things were not still looking great. Okay. Now, Sword and his troop had arrived barely in the nick of time. Scarcely were they settled behind the excellent breastwork formed by the fence when the uh, mad Indians uh, slashed their horses and lying low over the horses next to present small targets. They charged straight on the position towards the whites. Okay. Now, this is the 400. Yeah. And they had enough potential horsepower to really wipe them out. But here's what McKillicuddy said. He said, don't fire unless I tell you to. All right. So on they came, gathering speed and more speed. There was little the group catch behind the breast uh, the other guys could do except just wait. Well, at the last minute, the warriors reined up. They stopped. They were about 60 yards from this line of, of the whites and, and, the, and the police guys. Uh, kind of a pretty threatening mass of Indians. And they were a pretty good threat. Now, here's where an interesting thing happens. McGillicuddy turns to uh, the uh, interpreter, and he says, Hop out there, Lewis, and tell that old devil to hit back to camp. He yelled, uh, and he says, I'll give him just five minutes before we fire. No more. Uh, that doesn't sound very sane <laughs> to me. No. So the interpreter, Shangru, he sprung up. Uh, out uh, with the message, and the agent, McGillicuddy, jumped up on the wall with his watch in his hand, 
prepared to time the five minutes allowed by his ultimatum. Halfway to the band of the uh, Brulees, Shangru, the interpreter, shouted the message and then hurried back as fast as he could. Uh, to get, because you know, that was kind of a dangerous whole spot. Kind of, kind, kind of. of. Yeah. <laughs> so picture this McGillicuddy standing up there in plain sight with his watch, timing five minutes. Okay. This guy had a backbone the yeah. size of a highway. So anyway, McGillicuddy's order threw the Brulees into kind of a heated parley among themselves, and the sub chief, judging from his angry, impatient gestures, wanted to avenge uh, getting kicked in the rear end. Uh, but you know, the rest of the band seemed kind of be—they were kind of buffaloed by what they were seeing. And uh, finally, they just kind of started slowly turning their horses and uh, just kind of slowly left. And they left? And they left. And uh, anyway, according to old-timers, Dr. McGillicuddy stayed at the Pine Ridge Reservation for another five or six years. Um, And uh, actually, they think that if he had been the the agent at Wounded Knee uh, in 1890, that... uh, the way he handled things, that tragedy would not have occurred. Uh, this McGillicuddy was kind of like John Wayne and the Incredible Hulk all wrapped yeah. into one. In fact, it, he died in 1939, and wow. at, the, at the Pine Ridge uh, uh, Agency School, they flew the flight at half-staff in honor really? of McGillicuddy. No yeah. kidding. That was. I wish we had more time. I mean, I got a lot more questions. It was kind of a confusing story, but interesting. Very good yeah, story. Well, I, I hopefully it's not so bad that you don't understand that there was four hundred Bruley Indians against one hundred white and yeah and uh, Indian. And police. then somebody on the one hundred side said, "We've got them at a great disadvantage." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> jump up there and yeah. tell them that I'm gonna give them one chance to leave. Yeah, hold your watch. Yeah. Anyway, I gotta run. Thank you very much, Doc. History. Outstanding. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.